You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, I'm not sure anymore, we were dealing with the book of Revelation, and we once again would like to return to continue that series on the book of Revelation. Turn this morning to chapter 7, which is both our reading as well as our text. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 to the end of that chapter. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, of a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you can say that at this particular juncture in the book of Revelation, it is intermission 
our interlude time. What do I mean? Well, in our series of sermons on the book of Revelation, we have arrived at chapter 7. And then a close look at both chapters 6 and 8 reveals that a break, as it were, has been inserted into the story. For you may remember that Revelation 6 brings us to the opening of the seven seals. And then it proceeds to describe what happens when seals 1 to 6 are opened. You remember the first four seals are broken and the four horses go out, white, red, black, and pale in color. And they unleash terrible devastations upon the face of the earth, imperialism, war, famine, and death. After that, a fifth seal is opened and it is full of the slaughter or the persecution of the saints. And thereafter, a sixth seal follows and broadcasts all manner of great physical disasters and tumult. And so it is that we wait with bated breath for the last and the seventh seal to be opened. And we ask ourselves, what awful news will it describe? What terrible tidings will chapter 7 bring to us? But then surprise, surprise, for in chapter 7, the seventh seal is not opened. But rather we are introduced to an interlude, to something different, to something that stands in contrast to what has been revealed already and to what will be revealed next. So what is Revelation chapter 7, our text, all about this morning? Well, to put it very simply, you could say it's about sealing and it's about shouting. The verses 1 to 8 tell us about a great sealing that takes place on the earth. Whereas the verses 9 to 17 tell us about a great shouting that occurs in glory. And that now may lead you to think that all of this is odd or strange. What do sealing and what does shouting have to do with these seals? Well, the answer, my friend, is to be found at the end of chapter 6. For there a question is asked, and it is this. For the great day of the wrath of God has come. And who can stand? In other words, who can possibly survive in the face of the joint wrath of the Lord God Almighty who sits on the throne and of the Lamb? Who can prevail in the face of all this fury? Who can bear up? Who can possibly stand? And chapter 7, beloved, gives us the answer. It's going to tell us who can now stand in the face of all of this impending fury. And therefore, I would like to preach to you on the following theme, the sealed and the shouting, and we are going to see the sealed are numbered, and the shouting is numberless. Well, beloved, first we turn our attention to the verses 1 to 8, which describes next what takes place on the earth. John says, 
that he suddenly saw, verse 1, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And what are they doing? Well, he says they are said to be holding back the four winds of the earth. And why? Well, in order to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. And after seeing these four angels, he says he sees a fifth angel. It comes from the east. And note, it has what is called the seal of the living God. And next it proceeds to shout to the four angels, telling them, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So that's the overall picture. But now a few comments. In the first place, do not fixate on the small stuff here. In other words, do not fixate on the number four, four angels, four corners, four winds. There is no hidden meaning to the number four. Four usually stands simply for the earth in Scripture, for creation. And in the second place, do not conclude from all of this that the world, therefore, has to be flat or square or a square flat or a flat square. John is using an idiom here. He's speaking in popular terms and language. And in the third place, do take note of the word seal or sealed. It's used over and over again in these verses. A seal is to be placed, it says, on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So what does that mean? Specifically, what does this sealing mean? What's it all about? Well, if you do a little digging in your Bible dictionaries and commentaries, you'll soon come to the conclusion that a seal is usually associated either with a signet ring or with some kind of stamping device. A king or a ruler or some other person in authority would take his ring or his stamp, press it into some hot wax, pour it on perhaps an important document, wait for it to cool, and it leaves a very clear and indelible imprint. Now, what does that prover do? Well, three things. This sealing process indicates ownership, authenticity, and protection. You see, the seal says to someone, this is mine. It stresses, first of all, this aspect of of ownership. Think of, a, for example, a cattle rancher who brands or seals his cattle with his own particular logo. The brand proves that these cattle belong to him. It's all about ownership. And the seal also says, this is genuine. This is authentic. Some universities still insist on fixing a wax seal on an advanced degree to prove that it's real and genuine and not fake. This is, in other words, the genuine article, the real earned degree. And then to a seal can also say, this is not to be tampered with, stressing the aspect of protection or security. 
Sometimes a king would give to his servants a safe conduct pass with a seal on it, and you'd better not touch the messenger or the bearer of that particular pass of safe conduct or you risk your life. It protects him from harm and danger. So what is the picture that emerges here in chapter 7? It's one in which an interlude or intermission is described. And during that interlude or intermission, the winds and all the forces of destruction are being held back. And they're being held back in order that the servants of our God, it says, may be sealed that they may receive the sign of God's ownership, authenticity, and protection. These people are mine. These are really my people. And I am going to protect and watch over them. But of course that raises other questions. For example, what is written on this particular seal? Well, if you want an answer, you turn to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, where we are told that standing with the Lamb were 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. The seal contains the name of the Father and of the Lamb. Another question, of course, that arises is, well, how does this seal actually work or how does it function? It has to be said that that's kind of hard to answer. Perhaps the best we can do is is point, for example, to the children of Israel living in Egypt during the time of the ten plagues. Maybe it struck you when you read that particular part of Holy Scripture how Now, sometimes all sorts of damage and destruction happens among the Egyptians, whereas the Israelites get off scot-free. You read about the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth plagues. They don't even touch the Israelites. They do no damage in Goshen. You read all about that, Exodus 8, 9, 10. So what we have there, I think, is a pointer as to how God can and does exempt, spare, safeguard, protect his children even in the midst of all kinds of surrounding calamities and disasters. But then, beloved, if all of this tells us something about what's on the seal and how perhaps the seal works... It still leaves a few big questions, namely how many are sealed and who are the sealed. In the connection with the first question about how many, Revelation 7 tells us the number of those who were sealed was 144,000. So the sum total of the sealed are said to be 144,000 people. Quite a lot, but in the scheme of history, of course, not that many. But still, that's it. That's all. No more, no less. So what are we to make of that number, 144,000? The obvious thing, of course, is to take it literally. In other words, to say only 144,000 people actually get sealed. But you know, if you say that, you're 
making a big, big mistake. For realize well that we are here busy in the book of Revelation and in the book of Revelation the numbers used, especially the large numbers, are almost always symbolic. These numbers in Revelation are not statistics, they are not digits, they are symbols. So what does 144,000 symbolize? It symbolizes completeness, finality, totality. For in that number you find three, which is the number for God. You find four, the number for the earth. You find twelve, the number for the church or the people of God. And you find thousand, which is the number for vastness. You take three, you multiply it times four, and then by twelve, and then by thousands, and you get 144,000. So what you really get here is the total number, the complete number of all of God's children. But again, don't take it literally. It's not as if you can count one to 144,000 and say, that's it. Because this number is symbolic. For the entire church of Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end of the earth. But then you also have to ask the question, who are they? Notice verse 4 refers 144,000 from all the tribes, all the tribes of Israel. And then you have verses 5 to 8 refer to the 12,000 from the tribes of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And then to the question, who are the 144,000? Of course, the obvious answer is these are the Israelites. In chapter 7, God is telling us that 144,000 Israelites are going to be sealed no more and no less. And these Israelites and these alone are going to receive God's stamp of ownership, authenticity, and protection. But not so quick. Look again. Take a closer look at this list of names. Isn't it kind of strange and odd? This list, if you analyze it, this list is revamped, revised, qualified. In the first place, it doesn't follow the usual Old Testament order. That order begins with Reuben, the eldest. He's first. And everybody else comes after him. In the second place, notice that Levi is never in the list because Levi receives no portion in the land of promise because the Lord is his portion, Deuteronomy 10. And in the third place, notice Joseph is in the list and normally he's not there either. And finally, notice Dan and Ephraim are missing. So, beloved, this is a list that doesn't include all of Israel. It makes a selection out, out of Israel. 
It includes some and excludes others. In short, you can say here is that what we have first of all in this list is a reference to all of God's believing children out of the nation of Israel. Here God is revealing the chosen out of the Old Testament dispensation. It's saying God keeps his promises, his faithfulness to his children of Abraham in the Old Testament. And he safeguards all the elect from among the original people of God. But then not only them. For there's something else that's special and that's noteworthy here and It's the fact that, notice, this list of 12 tribes begins with Judah. Ordinarily, in the Old Testament, it never begins with Judah. Judah comes closer to the end than to the beginning. But yet here, Judah is first. Now, how do we explain that? Well, I think it's a pointer to the fact that while the elect of Israel are meant first, they are not the only ones. For something has, in the meantime, happened to Israel. Israel has been transformed. Jesus Christ, the great son of Judah, has come and he has forever changed the character and the constituency of God's people. You remember how Paul describes it in Romans 9 to 11 about that tree? Some of the branches are taken out and new branches are put in, grafted in. And they're all called the Israel of God. And those who are grafted in, beloved, that's us, pagan, Gentile, formerly heathen. We're grafted into the Israel of God. And so the result is the people of God are no longer exclusively Jewish. You might want to say they're Jewish plus. Jews plus Greeks and Romans, Germans, Anglos, Canadians, Koreans, Chinese, French, Dutch, Brazilians. And it goes on and on. So who are the 144,000 Jews only? Jehovah Witnesses only? No. The 144,000 represent the Israel of God. Represents all of God's people. From the Old Testament and the New Testament, today and even tomorrow. All who belong, in other words, to God, are sealed, are numbered. In other words, God knows who He is. And God will keep those who are His. Our God claims and He authenticates and He protects. All those who belong to him. And you know, that was a tremendously comforting message to the church in John's day. 
It should be a tremendously comforting message to us today as well. You may recall in John's day, persecution, war, upheaval, and suffering were everywhere. Today, temptation, corruption, immorality, disasters seem to be everywhere. And then there are times when we wonder and when we worry. What's going to happen to the people of God? What's going to happen to the church of Christ? Will it survive? Will it really, truly survive? What's going to happen in the end to all of God's promises? What's going to happen to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? The message of Revelation 7 is, beloved, do not fear. God's own have been sealed. They will be kept. They will persevere. They will survive. They will win. God will keep them and carry them forever. John need not worry, and you need not worry either. God's people, remember, are numbered. But then notice there's also a second part to Revelation chapter 7. First, as we mentioned in the verses 1 to 8, John is shown what happens on earth to God's people, how they're often battered and bruised by all that happens in life. But now in the verses 9 to 17, we move on to glory. And when you move on to glory, not just to heaven, because this is bigger even than heaven. This is glory. When you move on to glory, what do you see? What does John describe? Well, he describes a multitude. And notice he says, it's a great multitude. And then he adds, a great multitude that no one could count. And to a great multitude, he adds these words from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And then he adds further to a great multitude standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And then even more, he says, to a great multitude wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And finally, he says, to a great multitude that cries out. And that shouts in a loud voice. In other words, here we see this entire church, the 144,000, the innumerable number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We've moved from suffering to glory, from conflict to triumph, from being kept safe from God's judgments to being kept safe from man's judgments. Truly, here we are being reminded that the people of God are not just safe, secure. We're also being reminded the people of God are are actually numbers. That's why that 144,000 isn't literal. It simply points to completion. The numberless, complete throng of the people of God are here in glory. And notice... They're shouting. 
What are they shouting? Well, verse 10 says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You can say they're shouting, they're singing, if you will, they're crying out. It's all about salvation. This really is, you might say, in one sense, a song, an everlasting song that has only one word. But it's a big word. As a matter of fact, that that one word, salvation, really captures everything that happens to us in the Christian life. If you examine that word, salvation, you'll find sometimes it's used in the past tense. We, we have been saved, justified. Sometimes it occurs in the present tense. We are being saved, sanctified. And sometimes it also occurs in the future tense. We are going to be saved or we will be saved. Glorification. Salvation. If you want it in one word, that's what happens to us. But then notice that while the shouting is all about salvation, notice too, it's, it's all directed to the one, directed to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you ever thought that perhaps, just perhaps, salvation was also partly a little bit Your work, your input, your achievement. Get rid of the thought. Jesus, or John, sees here and hears here. And the same applies to us. That is all God's work. From start to finish. God is the author, the finisher, the sustainer of our salvation. Indeed, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The only contribution that we make to our salvation are the sins. Our sins that need to be forgiven. And so, beloved, the saints are shouting and singing here about salvation. And so are the angels. They all fall down and they too shout, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And that just shows you that angels know how to praise. Angels know how to throw parties. They do it all the time. Jesus says that every time a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. The angels are the true praise experts. So you see, beloved, taken together, praise. Praise is first. Praise preempts everything. Or somebody has said there is a pandemonium of praise described in this second part of Revelation 7. 
And someone else has said, we are not heading toward the eternal sermon. We're heading toward the eternal song. There's praise, rejoicing, and thanksgiving everywhere. But notice in glory there is also triumphs. Read the verses 13 and 14. A question is asked about the identity of the people who are dressed in white. And the answer is given, these are those who have come out of the, of the great tribulation. In other words, while in glory there is praise, on earth there is often persecution, suffering, and tribulation. Sad and deplorable things happen upon the face of the earth, especially before the return of Jesus Christ. But notice, tribulation. Even the great tribulation is not going to have the final word here, for triumph, victory, and glory is sure to come. Nothing, in other words, can destroy the children of God or the church of Jesus Christ because they are indestructible. Not only is there praise, there's triumphs. And the proof of that, beloved, is in the final three verses of our passage. Where in those final three verses you have a fullness of joy, an eternity of joy, First, there are privileges here. Verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. There is protection here. Look at verse 15 again. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. And verse 16, the sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. And there's provision here as well. Verse 16 again. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. And verse 17. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And finally there is also pity here. Verse 17. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Privileges, protection, provision, pity. Sometimes our sufferings here below are great and our hurts run deep and our pains are severe and our tears overflow. But then John says, it's as if God, as it were, pulls out his hanky and dabs the tears that flow from the eyes of everyone of his saints. That's what John describes. That's what God will do. He'll do it for all those whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. And of course, that raises the question, beloved, how's your wardrobe, how's your life been made white in the blood of the Lamb? Kind of a strange question, isn't it? Have you ever washed or tried to wash a white shirt in blood? 
Probably not, but I think you can predict pretty well what's going to happen if you try. You know that that white shirt is soon going to have a tinge of red throughout it all over. Because ordinarily, blood doesn't make white. Blood changes white to a kind of faded red. But not this blood. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses and whitens like nothing else can. But for that to happen to you, for that to happen to your life, you need to go to Him, believe in Him, trust in Him, be committed to Him. And if you do, and if you are, He'll whiten you. He'll seal you and He'll keep you safe. He will love you and protect you. He will lead you and He will guide you. And He will bring you to Himself in glory. And there too you can shout and sing with the saints and with the angels. That's great. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous revelation you have given us. And also what we find in here in Revelation chapter 7. Father, we thank you that we may know that all of us who are in Christ are sealed. And that one day we all will experience the glory. The glory that no eye has seen, no ear has heard of, no mouth can utter or describe, no mind can predict. It's coming. And so, Father, amidst all of the ups and downs of daily living, also amidst sometimes the troubles and the terrors of daily living, keep us anchored in your promises. The promises that we are yours and the promises that we will surely be indestructible because Jesus Christ has turned us from black to white, from damnation to salvation, so that we might sing his praises and enjoy his fellowship and the fellowship of the saints forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.